morning, St. Paul's. So, um, (laughs) as hopefully most of you have heard by now, uh, Sarah's COVID test did come back negative on Monday. And so we're really hoping that we're not going to have to worry about getting COVID tests for a while um, because that was uh, kind of frustrating. Two, two weeks in a row not to be able to, uh, to be here. And now that I am able to be here, of course, you guys aren't able to be here. So uh, I'm sorry that we're not able to have in-person service this week. Um, we we want to be clear that we do believe that the cautionary measures that we are taking make the risk of transmission very low if those uh, cautionary measures are followed. Um, but we do want to be extra cautious because right now both Willington and Tolland have been raised to red alert COVID status. And obviously uh, we do not want to have anything to do uh, with uh, increasing the spread of the virus. And so we thought, let's be extra cautious. Let's not uh, meet in person this week. But we want to encourage you, please check the weekly what's happening email every Friday because uh, Week to week, we're going to be assessing the situation and uh, making decisions accordingly. Um, so if you want to know whether there's in-person service week to week, make sure to check, check that. And if you're not on the what's happening email list, um, why not? Why don't you be added to it? Email uh, Keith at stpaulswire.org and he would be happy to put you on there. So we're going to be continuing our series in Revelation this morning. We're actually uh, finally going to finish chapter 14, which this is our third week now in chapter 14, believe it or not. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to chapter 14, starting in verse 14. Revelation 14, verse 14. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there's so many distractions all the time, every day. Our phones are buzzing, um, our minds are uh, racing with lots of different thoughts. And Lord, I just pray that right now, uh, for the next few minutes, you would just help us to attend solely to your word and solely to you. Uh, Lord, we um, open ourselves up to receive from your Holy Spirit whatever it is that you want to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation 14, 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles.
for a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right, so I'm going to start with a confession, which is, believe it or not, when I decided to do this series on Revelation, I did not have the entire book figured out. Hopefully that's not too shocking for you. Um, and I still don't have the whole book figured out. And as I've read more about it, I've become increasingly convinced that nobody has the whole book figured out. I've said this multiple times throughout this series, and I'll, I will say it again. Revelation is a very tough book to interpret. Probably the toughest book in all of scripture. And that means we have to approach it with humility. We have to be careful not to be dogmatic about our interpretations. And uh, this is a particularly tough passage, in my opinion. It's actually one of the toughest uh, that we've done so far. Our slogan here at St. Paul's is truth, grace, life. And in the interest of truth, I don't ever want to pretend that I am more confident about an interpretation of scripture than I actually am. And this was one of those weeks where I was faced with a decision. I could either be, uh, I could either pretend that I was absolutely certain of an interpretation, or I could be honest and present to you two interpretations and then let you guys decide. And uh, I've decided to go with the latter option, which does not make for a neat and tidy and straightforward sermon, but it does honor our value of truth as a church. So. Here we go, okay. In this passage we just read, we've got two images. Uh, the first is of a harvest, and the second is of grapes specifically being harvest, harvested and then thrown into a wine press or trampled in a wine press. Now in order to understand the significance of these images, I think we need to do a little review of chapter 14, where we've been so far in this chapter. So the first third of chapter 14, you might remember, it was a vision of the 144,000. And um, let's see here. It's a vision of the 144,000, which I, I believe is a vision of the people who are victorious over the forces of evil. Uh, victorious over the dragon, victorious over the beast from the land and the beast from the sea. And in the first century, that would be the people who were victorious over the Roman Empire. They were not bowing down and worshiping the empire. They weren't bowing down and worshiping the emperor or uh, money or military power, right? The people who were faithful uh, to Jesus. And then in the second third, of chapter 14, we got the vision of the angel's warning. And uh, the angels announced that the empire was going to be destroyed, that there was this coming destruction. And they said that everyone who receives the mark of the beast, in other words, everyone who worships the empire, who's bought into the spirit of empire, they are going to be destroyed. In other words, if you have married yourself to this worldly system, it is a sinking ship and it is going down. And if you are attached to it, you are going down with it. And so then we come to the last third, which is the passage that we just read, uh, the images of the harvest in the wine press. 
And what a lot of people say is that the way chapter 14 is structured, the vision of the harvest corresponds to the vision of the 144,000. It's basically another way of describing that. And the vision of the wine press corresponds to the fulfillment of the angel's warning, the destruction of the empire. Now, I don't know for sure if that's correct, but I think that makes sense, that that would be the structure of the chapter. So let's look a little bit more closely at both of these images. The harvest image is really a very positive image. That might be easy for us to miss because uh, most of us are not farmers and we live in a time where we want food. We just go to the supermarket and it's well stocked and uh, we don't have to worry very much about not having enough to eat. But in the first century, harvest time was this really joyous occasion because it was when you finally uh, experienced the fruit of all your hard labor. Right? When you finally, uh, your work yielded something and you had this security and confidence that you were going to be able to eat for the foreseeable future. And so what John is in, envisioning here with this harvest vision is a time when the fruit of God's labor pays off. This is a time when the fruit of Christ's sacrifice is fully revealed. And it's a time when all of the church's labor is fully manifested, fully revealed. So all that preaching, all that teaching, all the you know, donating to the soup kitchens and the actions of mercy and compassion and visiting people in the hospital and those long summer days of volunteering for vacation Bible school, right? Finally, it all pays off, okay? All, every act of faith motivated by love is never wasted. Okay, there's, there is a point when all of it culminates and the harvest is revealed. Now, okay, so that's the harvest image. Very joyous. Uh, let's go to the grape harvesting image. Now, at first glance, this one might seem positive too, right? Because gathering grapes for the harvest, that also is when the fruit of one's labor uh, yields a result. Um, most people enjoy drinking wine, right? So at first glance, it might seem like it's positive, but we read a little further and then we recognize, oh, this is actually a very ominous image. Uh, it's ominous for several reasons. Uh, one is because the wine press is called the great wine press of God's wrath. Um, now, just in case you're not sure what a wine press is, um, the way it works is the wine press is the place where grapes get crushed uh, to be made into wine. So they're either crushed by people actually trotting on them, crushing them with their feet, uh, or they're crushed by some sort of tool that comes down and, and smashes them. That's what a wine press is. So this wine press is, is ominous because of its association with the wrath of God. It's also ominous because the juice that flows out of it is described as blood. Okay. Um, so what appears to be being crushed in this wine press is human beings. And they are being destroyed. They're being killed, which obviously is very ominous. And if that weren't ominous enough, we're also told that the blood that flows from this wine press 
goes up high enough that it's at where the horse's bridles are, which, if you know how high that is, that's, that's pretty high, and for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Um, now, 1,600 stadia is about 200 miles. Um, so this is a ridiculous amount of blood. There have been people who have tried to calculate, okay, if we take this literally, how many human beings would have to die to create this volume of blood? I know this is gory, but um, people have actually attempted, okay, if we take this literally, what do we come up with? And I am not real good at math, so you know, I don't know for sure who's right, but most of the uh, calculations that I looked at said that it would have to be much more people than have ever lived. Uh, one, one calculation I saw uh, estimated 24 quadrillion people, which that is just an incredible number. I mean, that is more than three million times the number of people presently living on Earth. Okay, so it is just an insane uh, number of people. So this is very, very ominous, very ominous. Now, I think that the extravagance of that number should make it very clear to us that this is not meant to be taken literally, okay? Revelation is filled with symbolic, hyperbolic, dream-like, and sometimes nightmare-like imagery. It is written in what is known as the genre of apocalyptic writing. And apocalyptic writing always used these very dramatic, lurid uh, imagery in order to get its point across. But even though I don't think we should be taking this literally, it should still strike us as very ominous. Uh, because even if John is not literally saying that 24 quadrillion people are going to get thrown into this giant wine press, he is definitely saying something significant. So what is he saying? Well, when it comes to that number, 1600, scholars actually have all kinds of different theories on what the significance of it is. Uh, but most of, it, most of them think that it in some way suggests the judgment of God or the complete judgment of God. One of the arguments is that it's 40 times 40, and you may know that 40 has significance throughout scripture. Um, 40 years in the desert, that kind of thing. And so some argue that this combination of 40s is a way of referring to this complete uh, judgment of God. But the reality is that no one knows for certain uh, what the significance is of 1600 stadia is. We just have theories. Now the question that I've been wrestling with more, and the one that led me to say I'm going to have to offer two interpretations for you this morning, is what do the grapes represent? What do the grapes represent? So I'm going to give you two possible answers and then let you decide which one you think is better. Interpretation one is the grapes represent those who refuse to submit to Jesus. So like we talked about last week, right? There are people who worship the beast and its image. And these people have totally bought into the spirit of empire. They have refused to repent of that. And uh, last week they were described as being tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. Here they're being described, presumably, as being crushed in a giant wine press 
of God's wrath. Later in the book, they're going to be described as uh, being eaten by birds, having their flesh torn off by birds. And the point of all this lurid Im imagery is not to tell us, literally or scientifically, what is going to happen to those who reject Jesus. I mean, I don't even know how you could be eaten by birds and then also thrown into a giant wine press. Oh yeah, and also have a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth strike you down. <laughs> so when you try to take all these images literally, you have a problem, right? Because they, they can't even all go together. So the point of this imagery is not to tell us literally or scientifically what is going to happen, but it is to wake us up to the reality, to the fact that if we are not on Jesus' side, we're doomed. We're doomed. If we have hitched ourselves to Babylon, in whatever form Babylon has taken in our day and age, if we worship empire and subscribe to the spirit of empire, we are on a sinking ship. And that ship is going down, and unless we repent, there are going to be horrifying consequences. This is serious, we are in a spiritual battle, and if we have aligned ourselves with the forces of evil, we are going to lose. So wake up. If you need to repent, repent. And what that word repent really means is to change your mind. You know, I've been thinking lately about how it seems like it is easier to move heaven and earth than to get someone to change their mind about something that actually matters. <laughs> and when you, when you think of it that way, you know, it, it adds this profound meaning to the fact that, that God tells us to repent. There's something in us that just does not like, like to change our mind about significant things. But that is the basis of repentance. Stop living like God isn't actually there. Stop living without any fear of God. Stop living as if you can be God of your own life. Stop living as if the most important things are loyalty to your tribe and money and power and worldly success. Change your mind while you still can. So that's interpretation number one. Now, interpretation number two, I will admit, is a minority position. I know of four people who advocate for it. Not saying there isn't more, but I know of four. And uh, I think it's compelling enough that I'm going to share it. So, interpretation number two is that the grapes represent the martyrs. The many people throughout history who have been killed because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Now, why would that be? Well, let's look at one of the verses from this same chapter, chapter 14. A little bit earlier in chapter 14... Um, it says, verses 9 through 10, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So notice, in this verse, the enemies of God, those who worship the beast, are drinking something called the wine of God's fury. And it seems reasonable to assume that whatever wine they would be drinking 
is what is created by the winepress of the wrath of God, right? They're drinking the wine of God's fury. Assume that came from the winepress. But if the enemies of God are drinking the wine of God's fury, how can they be what went into the winepress, right? They would be drinking themselves. That doesn't really make sense, does it? So what some people say is that this is evidence that the wine press isn't crushing the enemies of God, but is actually crushing the martyrs. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but if we move ahead to chapter 17, there's another point in favor of this interpretation. In chapter 17, there's this vision of um, Babylon described as a prostitute. And it says in verses 4 through 6, she held a golden cup in her hand. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Okay, so here we have, like in chapter 14, an enemy of God drinking what could be described as the wine of God's fury, poured into the cup of his wrath. Because she's drinking the blood of God's people, right? And what's going to make God more furious and wrathful than that, right? Than someone um, murdering his faithful people and in some way um, serving themselves through that murder, right? So what advocates of this interpretation will say is that the wine press of God's wrath is called that because it produces wrath for God. When the wine press kills God's people, it produces God's wrath. Hence, it is called the wine press of God's wrath. That little word of can make translation very, very difficult because it can mean a lot of different things depending on context. Like, for example, let's say you're, you've, you've gone crazy and you have a car that you use to run people over. It's a terrible illustration, but just imagine that. You might say, this is the car of my wrath, right? But also, if you had a car that always broke down all the time and was super annoying to you, and you might say, this is the car of my wrath, right? And both of those things would make sense. And so what advocates of this interpretation would say is that the wine press is the wine press of God's wrath, just like the car that always breaks down would be the car of your wrath. You see what I mean? The little word of can mean different things depending on context. Now, like I said, I am not sure which of these two interpretations is correct. I lean a little bit more towards the first one, just because it's, um, it's more common. And there's another reason, which is because in chapter 19, it describes Jesus when he comes on the, wide, on the white horse as someone who treads the winepress of God's wrath. So it's hard for me to understand why Jesus would be described as treading on the martyrs. Okay? So that's why I lean towards the first interpretation. But I have to admit, I have not read everything by the people who advocate for the second interpretation. And they may have something to say that's compelling about that. I don't know for sure. I ran out of time in my study this week. Okay? But I think there's enough going for that second interpretation that I felt compelled to give it to you and let you decide. 
And one of the reasons that I'm fine with suggesting that second interpretation is because even if that's not what John intended with the winepress image, the application is definitely true and is definitely in the spirit of revelation because martyrdom is a theme throughout revelation. It shows up over and over again. Uh, earlier in Revelation, we're told that the only person who is worthy to open the scroll of history is the lamb who was slain. And why is he worthy? Because he was slain. Right? There's that theme of victory through death. And then we come to find out that the content of this scroll was something that John described as both sweet and bitter. It was, the content of the scroll was sweet because it revealed that in God's plan for history, many, many people are going to repent. Many, many people are going to turn from the spirit of empire and be aligned with Jesus Christ. But it was bitter because it revealed that the way that that was going to be accomplished was through the suffering witness of God's people. Okay? So it was good news, but uncomfortable news. Sweet, but also bitter. Revelation reminds us over and over again that there are going to be times where it seems like Jesus is not in charge. There are going to be times where it seems like injustice and evil are winning. There are going to be times when it seems like the faithful lose. There are even going to be times where the blood of the righteous runs in the streets. But, it says, endure with patience. Be faithful. Don't return evil for evil. Because even if you are killed for your faith, even if your enemies put you through the wine press, your death is either going to lead to their repentance or it's ultimately going to lead to their judgment. Either way, you are victorious. Now, regardless of which of those two interpretations is correct, I want us to think about the wine press from one other angle. When we think about the wine press, we should not just think about the enemies of God being crushed or the servants of God being martyred. We should also remember that Jesus himself went into the wine press. Jesus himself went into the wine press. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' wine press was the cross. And there is actually a, a hint in verse 20 that we're supposed to be thinking about the cross when we read about the wine press. It's easy to miss. Uh, but verse 20 says, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city. That phrase outside the city is significant. Because Jesus was also trampled and crushed outside the, outside the city, outside of Jerusalem. Scripture makes it a point to uh, emphasize that. For, for example, Hebrews 13.12 says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. So there's that phrase again, outside the city. And if you want another reason to think of Jesus when you think of the wine press, communion. Right? What we celebrate every week. Jesus declared that he wants us to think of wine as representing his blood. 
which means he's implying that he has gone through a wine press, right? His blood was shed for our sins. So, on the one hand, Revelation tells us that Jesus treads the winepress of God's fury. But on the other hand, it reminds us that Jesus himself was trodden on in the winepress of God's fury. Because Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He was crushed and trampled outside the city gate. And actually, this idea is something that people uh, picked up on early in church history, all the way back to uh, St. Augustine. And there's a history of art that depicts Jesus as treading in a wine press while also being crushed in the wine press. Um, you can see it here, give you a few examples. You can see that Jesus is standing in the wine press as if he would be treading in it but there's something that's coming down on him, uh, crushing him in the wine press. Here's another one. Another one. So, what's my point? Well, here's the point. If you heard that first interpretation of the greats, that they are the enemies of God being crushed, and you thought, that is terrifying people being crushed and their blood flowing like a river. I don't want to be destroyed like that. I don't want to experience that kind of judgment. Whether that's literal or not, that is scary. Well, if that's what you thought, the first thing you need to hear is, that happened to Jesus. That happened to God incarnate. And it happened to him not because he deserved it, but because he loved you so much that he was willing to go through the wine press so that you don't have to. So if you're terrified, take your fear and focus it on that. Right? Focus it on the fact that Jesus cares about you that much. And then let your fear transform into faith. Faith that God is far more interested in saving and redeeming you than in destroying you. But you got to turn from the spirit of empire and turn toward him. And then if you heard the second interpretation, the one where the grapes represent the martyrs, and you thought, I don't want to die for my faith. I don't even want to suffer for my faith. I don't want to be uncomfortable at all. I just want to take it easy. Well, if that's what you thought, once again, think of Jesus going into the wine press. And remember, he's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of some, some discomfort. He's worthy of our service. But not only that, remember this. When Jesus went into the wine press, when he was crushed, he didn't stay crushed. Right? He rose again. His death led to victory. And if we belong to Jesus, then the same thing is true for us. Our death leads to victory. Our suffering leads to victory. You know, I like to say, death and suffering are going to be a part of life regardless of what you believe. 
Right? That is inevitable. But if we belong to Jesus, if our suffering is for him, rather than because of our commitment to empire and the values of empire, then we are going to be victorious. Because Jesus went into the wine press and he overcame it. So if you're feeling filled with fear when we read this passage this morning, remember, remember Jesus going into the wine press. Focus on that and let your fear turn into faith. Faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we think about this passage this week, that you'd give us wisdom that you give us understanding. But most of all, Lord, we pray that it would lead us to think about you going through the wine press and to think about the love that compelled you uh, to put yourself through that for our sake. And Lord, may that inspire us to turn, to change our mind about the things that we need to change our mind about and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we uh, start the song of, re of reflection, um, I just want to let you know that we now have like a, a virtual version of our connection cards. Uh, we haven't had uh, physical connection cards since March, um, but in the past we always had these cards where you could write how you've seen God move and any prayer requests that you want the pastoral staff or the prayer team to pray for during the week. And uh, we now have a, a connection card form, a prayer form, uh, on the St. Paul's website. So go to stpaulschurchct.org uh, um, and take the time during the reflection song, if you'd like, uh, to find that form and uh, to fill in, out any prayer requests you might have. And there will be a link in the comments as well. Thanks.